0: in here today, right now. Anyone else hot? So I made the mistake. Earlier I asked one of our elders, Tim, hey Tim, is it hot in here? Should we turn the air down? And he's like, no, it feels great. And then I remembered he's from Zimbabwe and keeps his house temperature what, at like 90 when you sleep at night, something like that. So it matters who you ask questions to. I learned that today. <clears throat> anyway. Anyway. Uh, make your way over to the the, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter one. That's where I want you to be. We'll start in verse twenty nine, or that'll be where we're at. Um, so while I was in in seminary in in Dallas, uh, Laura, my wife, and I, we. We decided to go downtown one time and see the place where, where John F. Kennedy, President John F. Kennedy, was assassinated. And the street's still in use. It's not like it's marked off as a memorial or anything like that. There's just this big white X right in the middle of the street where, where it actually happened. It's kind of a, it, it's an interesting thing. If you ever get the chance, go do it. It's kind of an interesting thing to walk into that place of history as it's still all functioning. Uh, now, when we went down there, we knew very little about the assassination of JFK, uh, and, and so we were grateful when some unofficial guide decided to come and tell us all the story about it. Uh, and by unofficial guide, I mean just some, some dude who spends his days telling people stories down there by, by Dealey Plaza. Dealey, Daily Plaza. Uh, anyway, he began to tell us this story about how the assassination came to be, and he would jump from one little bit of information to another bit of information, and we're going all over the place uh, until he comes to this grand conclusion that told us that LBJ killed John F. Kennedy uh, so that he could be president. And we're like, wow, okay, that's what happened, huh? Uh, and, and his kicker at the end was, was that in Dallas... Notice the the highway is named LBJ, but there is no JFK highway here. So somehow that was the evidence at the end. Um, Anyway, it wasn't until sometime much later that we learned that The story we are being presented here was actually a conspiracy theory. Um, Maybe I just offended you by calling it that, if you're one of the people that buys into it. But a conspiracy theory, not provable uh, history. And I I say that because if I'm honest, every time I hear someone begin to walk this, this trail of little bits of information, no matter what it is, no matter how absolutely true it is, if it involves jumping around, my first instinct is to become skeptical now, like you're that guy that was showing us around Daily Plaza back in the day, and I'm telling you this because we're going to be beginning in, in 1 John uh, 129. that's our primary passage this morning, but I'm going to have us all, you, jumping around to various passages today as I'm trying to show you something, um, and I want you to see it for yourselves, which means I want you flipping pages to these passages, or pressing your screen, whatever it takes you to get to these passages, uh, because this is not a conspiracy theory, uh, but we are going to be tracing this redemptive theme that is is a thread, right, that is woven throughout the scriptures. So that's that's where we're going. So now, uh, I'm going to read our primary verse. Uh, This is John the Baptist speaking, and I'll tell you a little bit about him here in a moment, but uh, he sees Jesus approaching, and that's where we're at. Uh, John 1, Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for and we find hope in the resurrection every day. We celebrate it every Lord's Day. But today, we rejoice with brothers and sisters in Christ around the planet as your church remembers the greatest moments in all of history, the moment that Jesus, having laid down his life on the cross, was risen from the dead. Father, renew our hearts to rejoice in this glorious truth, to feel the weight of what Jesus has accomplished for us. And now we ask that you would remove distractions, that you would give us true focus on on this beautiful thread we find running through redemptive history. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So John the Baptist is a strange man, maybe one of the most strange individuals in all of the scriptures, and in modern terms, he is the second cousin of Jesus, meaning his, uh, their mothers were cousins, in case you're trying to do the math on that. Uh, he's known for wearing camel's hair as clothing with a leather belt, which doesn't sound crazy to us, but it was a little crazy back then. He ate honey, he ate locusts. He is also just this this wild and holy prophet of the Lord, and his whole God-given mission in life was to prepare the way of the Lord. Now, if I admit, he's one of my favorite people in Scripture, right? I I came to faith late. I was uh, 16, 17, I think 17 years old, just turned 17, uh, and he's just one of my favorite people. And in college, uh, once a year, I'd celebrate what I call JTB Week, John the Baptist, uh, and I would I would camp out in this public park in College Station, Texas, uh, and I'd read my Bible, and I'd journal, and and, and it seemed makes make so much sense at the time. When I look back on it, though, I have to admit, uh, it was probably illegal to do that, and two, it undoubtedly was a creepy thing to do. Uh, so I don't know that I'd recommend you do that. Uh, I'm talking like city parks, like if you were camping in city park, that kind of thing. So anyway... What I love about John the Baptist is how just absolutely God-centric he is in ways that, that we long to be, we, we want to be, right? Nine verses before this in John 120, in response to the question of some of the priests, John confesses this thing that, that all of us should confess on a regular basis, right? Whenever we find ourselves trying to carry the weight of the world, whenever we find ourselves in over our head, right, John confesses, I am not the Christ, even before he begins to introduce them to people. I am not the Christ. And, and then a few verses later, a few chapters later, in John 3.30, I love this, uh, as people are pointing out, you know, John, all these disciples of yours, these people that were coming to you for baptism and to learn from you, they're following Jesus now. They're going after him. They're not, they don't even care about you. And, and he so beautifully puts it here. He says simply, he, meaning Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. In other words, of course they are. And they should. That's that's who you should be following, right? Now, Now, on the day of our passage, John is out in the wilderness and he's baptizing people in the Jordan River and suddenly he looks up and there is Jesus approaching from a distance and as he comes close, right? This is the setting of which the passage we just read is. The phrase, right? Where he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, a lamb is certainly not the most masculine of, of animals to be compared to. Especially for a man who certainly had substantial strength because he was vocationally a, a carpenter. right? Of, of all the names to introduce Jesus to these, these desert disciples, right? why in the world does he call him the Lamb of God? It's because John, he, he could have said anything, right? That would have I made mean, absolute biblical sense. He could have said, behold the word of God. If you're familiar with John chapter 1, that would have made perfect sense. He, he could have said, behold the Messiah of God. He could have said, behold the great I Am. He could have said, look, the Holy One of Israel is coming to us right now. He could have said, you, you know, behold the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Lion of Judah. But he doesn't use any of those words, any of those names. All great names that he could have introduced with them. He says, behold the Lamb of God of God. And if you want to get literally what's going on, he's saying, look! God's Lamb! Look! God's Lamb! L- listen, John the Baptist announces Jesus this way, because right from the start of his public ministry, God is showing that Jesus has come to be a sacrifice. That's what he's come to do. That's what we're exploring this morning. So let's, let, let's travel back. This is where you got to Got to get moving, right? Travel back to Genesis 22. Go ahead, make your way there. Uh, this, if you're, if you're thinking time-wise, this is somewhere around the year 2000. You can argue that, uh, but somewhere around the year 2000. Uh, and again, no one's worried about Y2K here because we're talking 2000 BC. Uh, and sometime, some years before this, when, when Abraham is, <clears throat> or Abram is 99 years old, this is <clears throat> what I'm about to tell you. This is Genesis 17, but you stay in 22. Uh, Anyway, in in Genesis 17, at that time, the Lord appears to Abram. That's his name before God changes it on this day. Uh, And at that time, God reveals himself saying, I am God Almighty. Right? That's his introduction to Abram. And then God commands him to walk blamelessly. He informs Abraham, I'm establishing a covenant with you. And he promises to multiply uh, Abraham greatly. He says, you are going to be the father of many nations. Meaning, you're going to have a ton of descendants. A ton of them, right? And in fact, God at one other time says your offspring will be like trying to number the stars. Trying, because they are going to be that many. And and this is a huge promise, right? Because God is making this promise that you're going to have massive ascendants. And, And here's the kicker. Abraham is 99 years old, and he doesn't even have a single legit child at this point. And he's incredibly old. Well, the Lord eventually does give him a son. He names the son Isaac. And now in Genesis 22, verse 2, if you got it there, God said the most peculiar thing. Look at it, verse 2, 22, 22, 2. He says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So listen, a a burnt offering is not like dedicating your son to the Lord. It's not like that at all. A burnt offering is when you take an animal and you kill that animal and then you burn the animal uh, upon wood, upon an altar-like thing. Uh, now the Hebrew word for, for burnt offering actually means to ascend, right? Because it's, it's smoke, it goes up. The offering goes up in the smoke to the Lord um, is the, the idea here. It's kind of, uh, you know, the smell of a barbecue maybe. Uh, th- that's why when, when, when Noah gave a burnt offering after leaving the ark, we learned that that offering was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Right? The Lord's accepting that. We see it throughout the Old Testament, right? That it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, let's be honest about this thing. Sometimes we try to cover this up as Christians, like this is no big deal. But but what God's asking him to do is absolutely crazy. It's nuts. And and yet, Abraham takes Isaac, and they make their way to Mount Moriah. They set up the wood where the offering is to take place. And and now look at Genesis 22.7. Isaac says, my father, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Talk about an awkward conversation. Um, and Abraham says, God's going to provide himself a lamb for the offering. You know, is, is that a way of, of, of saying, you know, Isaac, you're the offering. Or, or does he believe that God is going to provide a substitute some way? I I don't know the answer to that. I really don't. I I tend to to lean towards the former, right? Because Abraham lays Isaac on the wood and and he raises his knife. He's prepared to actually kill his son, his only son. Now this is weird on two layers, levels, well, at least two levels. Um, I'll give you two. First, God is asking him to kill his son. That's not the kind of thing you expect God to do. Second, because if he does kill Isaac, not only will this be heartbreaking, but how in the world is God going to fulfill the promise to make Abraham's descendants numbering the stars if you go ahead and kill the son, the only son? right? If there is no seed, there is no tree. And so with the knife in his hand, and he's, and he's raised, and he's ready to strike Isaac to actually kill him, and an angel of the Lord calls out in this moment and calls out, Abraham, Abraham! And you can see what the angel says there, verse 12, he says, do not lay your hand on the boy, or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. In that moment, Abraham looks up and he notices this this ram, right, it's got these horns and it's stuck in the bushes somehow, it can't get out, and it's all twisted up there, and, and so he kills that ram, and it... It comes and it takes the place of Isaac on, as the sacrifice. There's a ram that stands as the substitute sacrifice. So, so then in, in Genesis 22:14, 14, we, we see that Abraham names this place. He names it, the Lord will provide. That's its name. He, he then goes on and, and says, right, regarding Mount Moriah, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Which is curious because look at the tenses of those words. He doesn't say God has provided Right? That would make perfect sense. Look, the Lord has provided a ram in the place of Isaac. The Lord has provided, but he says the Lord will provide. Um, right? It's, it's not a reference to Isaac. What we're seeing here is this, this future promise. All right. So now, hop in your DeLorean. Let's, let's go forward 500 years. Make your way over to Exodus 12 uh, the Israelites have been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years and, and God is in the process of, of freeing them. All those wonderful plagues are happening, the frogs and the gnats and the, the hail and the locusts and the boils and the water and so on. And, and the tenth and final plague is, is that God will send an angel who will pass through the land, pass by the homes, right, and strike down the firstborn of every single household. Out of curiosity, how many of you are the firstborn male in your house? All right, you guys are toast. Um, right? That's, that's what it is. Now, the judgment of God is going to be severe here. But as with all of God's judgment, there is a way of salvation. You, you see it there in verses uh, 3 through 5 here. God tells the Israelites, take a male lamb, one without blemish, and kill it. And then, using this scraggly plant called hyssop, uh, they are to paint the blood upon the door frames. Right? Right? Um, It's to protect your home, right? Look at at verse 13 here. God God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you. They they are then instructed, you go inside your house, inside your home, and you do not come back out until morning. Do not. Because they they are safe only if they will shelter under the blood of the lamb. And so then that night in Egypt, every family experience death in their house either a dead son or a dead lamb in the place of their son the lamb is a a substitute sacrifice or theologically speaking substitutionary atonement here now on, on this night israel is saved by the blood of the lamb and thus the passover festival becomes you know remembering what god has done here this becomes the biggest festival the biggest celebration the most important thing for god's people going forward All right, we're traveling again. Hop in your TARDIS, uh, move forward another 500 years, head to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, here we are, we are listening in as King David is praying. Uh, It's a prayer that comes after one of the most depraved moments of his entire life, or in response to that moment. He, He has committed adultery with a married woman named Bathsheba. And like so many are prone to do, he wants to cover up his sin. It's most important that somehow no one knows about it. Uh, He tries to do it a few different ways. Eventually, he takes Uriah, that's her husband's name, and and he happens to be a faithful soldier in David's army, and he sends him to the very front line, to the place where he is most likely to get killed. And he does, in fact, get killed, uh, effectively murdering the man, the innocent man. And Psalm 51 begins with this plea from David, "'Have mercy on me, God.'" According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. He's praying for forgiveness. Now now go down to verse 7 real quick. He he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Right, this hyssop plant, this is the plant that they would mix into the blood of these sacrifice animals, right? This is the one that at times was, was shaken on the people for the forgiveness of their sins. Right here, here, he's mentioning the hyssop, but there's no mention of the lamb. He's, he's inferring, you know, God has the hyssop used in, in, in these sacrifices, but does God have the lamb? Does he have the sacrifice to atone for David's sin? Well, the lamb's not mentioned in this chapter, and yet David prays it with absolute confidence. Now, now let's turn Hermione's time turner, and we're going to jump forward another 500 years into the future. Uh, make your way to Isaiah 53, This prophecy is foretelling, uh, speaking about the future Messiah, uh, Isaiah 53. Uh, Now look at verse 3 there. Uh, Listen to how it presents Christ. He was oppressed and he was afflicted and yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. He opened not his mouth. If you're familiar with the the last days of our Lord, you know that this is all fulfilled when he he goes through that trial that that happens in the night. Um, So that's where that gets fulfilled. We're going to go forward again, uh, hop in our hot tub, right, 500 years, heading to Luke chapter 2. This is more Christmas than Easter in Luke chapter 2, or is it? Uh, This is the night of the incarnation, what a glorious night uh, the night that the Lord Jesus is born, and, and look in uh, Luke 8, or 2.8, we are peeking in as a choir of heavenly beings, as, as angels are appearing, not to dignitaries, not to nobles, not to kings, not to the, the highly, but to lowly, dirty shepherds near Bethlehem. Now someone remind me, what do shepherds care for? Sheep. And do you know what a sheep is called the first year of its life? Lamb, is that news to anybody? Um, in, in fact, some of the lambs that are being raised by these shepherds were, were certainly later to be used to be sacrificed in celebrate our Passover celebrations by Israel. And so then the angel is ba- basically at this point tells the shepherds, Do you want to see the real Passover lamb? You want to see the true Passover lamb? And then he sends them right. Tells them where to go. Sends them to welcome God incarnate into the world. I mean, you you catching this? God sends shepherds, men who care for lambs, to be the first to welcome and worship the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God. Where do they find him laying, right? They find him in a manger, swaddled there. Again, something you'd find with a lamb. I I don't want to make too much out of this, right? Is Is this starting to sound conspiracy theory when you do that, Right? Um, and yet, I, I don't believe this is a coincidence. God is sovereign, and in his divine providence, he, he has woven this Lamb of God theme throughout the scriptures. It's leading us somewhere. Now, let's, let's travel forward one more time. You want to guess how many years we're going? You want to say 500, don't you? Yeah, no, not 500. That would make sense. We've done it every time. We're going to go 33 years uh, after Jesus' birth, Mark 14. Make your way over there. What, what's interesting Right, Mark 14 is one of the places where the Lord's Supper is recorded. It's also recorded in Matthew 22, or 26 and, and Luke 22. And in none of these, in none of these is the Passover lamb mentioned as being at the table. There's no mention of it. Was it there? Yeah, for sure it was there. They're celebrating the Passover. But, but what a strange thing to mention the bread, to mention the wine, and yet not mention the lamb. I can't help but, but wonder, right, why, why not mention it? perhaps... Because our attention is, is drawn at this meal, it's drawn to the true Passover lamb who is reclining at the table there. Our attention is drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Mark fourteen twenty four. 24. Jesus says to his disciples, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. This is my blood of the covenant poured out for many. Jesus is preparing them for the fulfillment of the Passover as he will soon lay down his life as a sacrifice. Later, the Apostle Paul, speaking the Lord's Supper, is going to write, right, 1 Corinthians 5-7, is going to write, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And the Apostle Peter, likewise, is going to write, 1 Peter 1-18, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ." Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Right? Lambs without blemish or spot. These are the sacrifice. And so then let's go back to John one twenty nine, Find our way back where we began. Right? Back back to the crazy man in camel's hair, hair with his sticky honey hands. Right? He, he's drawing everyone's attention to Jesus as he shouts this out. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now in our normal preaching schedule right now, we're making our way through Nehemiah. Last week we were in Nehemiah 3, and we have this big list of all these, these gates, right? One of the significant uh, gates was the, the sheep gate, where, where animals were brought in day after day, brought into the city, taken to the temple. It was this, this endless procession. It was a messy and, and bloody. You can imagine, uh, it, it, you, can you imagine if every day we were sacrificing an animal in here today? Right, We just push all that stuff off the Lord's Supper table and we're, we're killing an animal. Blood, guts, everywhere. Can you imagine the stench when you come in here on a Sunday? See, when, when John the Baptist introduces Jesus as the Lamb of God, that, that's part of the image that they would have had in mind, right? The, the Jews that know this. That, that's where they're seeing it as they go to the temple on their own. What, what they wouldn't understand until later is that Jesus is the one who's going to fulfill the continual daily sacrifices in the temple. What they wouldn't understand until later is that that Jesus is the meaning of all the festivals, all the rituals going on there. What they wouldn't understand is how Jesus truly is God's lamb. The the one who, the one God provides for the sins of his people. In fact, that that phrase at the end of what John's shouting out, right? Who takes away the sin of the world, that phrase takes away, takes away more literally means to take up. Right? You collect something and bring it to yourself. It, Jesus takes away our sin by taking it up upon himself. Jesus is the ultimate substitutionary atonement. As uh, R.C. Sproul has said, Jesus' death was not to satisfy God's justice for Jesus' own sins, because he had none, but for the sins of others. He, he stepped into the role of the substitute representing his people. And where does this history shattering sacrifice actually occur right? it happens at a place called Golgotha which is in Jerusalem well there's, there's something interesting about Jerusalem you don't have to turn there but in 2 Chronicles 3.1 it's kind of a throwaway statement there but we read this it says and then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah now you remember where we saw this Mount Moriah earlier today back in Genesis 22 Verse 14, when God provided a lamb in the place of Isaac, the very mount where, that Abraham referred to as on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now we, we, we can't know how near to the exact same location these two events happen, but certainly the Lord does provide the sacrifice of Jesus in the same general location that Abraham named the Lord will provide. It all comes around. And just like Israel escaped the judgment of God in the tenth plague by sheltering under the blood of the Lamb, you and I, we, we too, escape the plague of the, of the divine judgment by sheltering under the blood of the Lamb, under the blood of the Lamb of God, under the blood of Jesus. As, as Glenn Schreibner so beautifully puts it, in Egypt, God did not inspect the inside of the house, he looked for the blood on the outside. Likewise, salvation is not about the perfection of our lives, but rather it's about the merit of Jesus' sacrifice. It's all about whose blood you are sheltering under. So at this point, you might be thinking, this is the least Eastery sermon you've ever heard, right? We haven't even mentioned the resurrection. Uh, not even a bit. Well, let's, let's look at one more passage. It's Revelation 5. Right? The Apostle John is here. Uh, he's been given this, this vision. Uh, this is later in his life. It's his vision of the future, and, and he obediently writes it down as the Lord tells him to. Uh, first, look at Revelation 5:6, which says, "Between the throne and the, four, throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain." First of all, how how is a lamb that was slain standing? You know, they. So I need to explain this to you. Dead animals don't stand, right? Uh, or, or more curiously, why, why does it say as though it had been slain? Not, you know, because it is sitting there slain. You, you see, it's, it's worded that way because the lamb was slain. But it's no longer slain. It, it's come back to life, right? It, Jesus has resurrected. Jesus is alive. As, as, as we hear the resurrected Lord say himself, Revelation 1, 18, right? Here he's speaking. He says, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades, Jesus, our Lord, is alive and all who trust in him by grace through faith, though we also die, will die, right? We will be resurrected and live forevermore at peace with the Lord, with God. In Revelation, the heavenly creatures are singing not about Jesus. It's important. They're not singing about Jesus. They're singing to Jesus. Right? They're singing to him because he's alive. It's it's not a memorial. And, and they're singing this, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, and you, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God and every, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so then this foundational identity of Jesus is what John the Baptist, in fact, shouted out on that day when he first introduces him. And his public ministry begins... The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Can you hear him shouting this? Behold the sacrifice. Look, the blood, the bleeding lamb, right? Behold your Savior. So, you want some application today? Let me give you one. Behold Jesus. If you haven't already put your faith in Jesus you must be sheltering under the blood of the Lamb. And Christian, behold the Lamb of God who was slain for your sin and raised to life and victory over death. Behold Him. Remember Him. Worship Him. Relate to Him in prayer. Trust Him in suffering. Rest in Him. Shelter under His blood. Yes, let us behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Lamb who laid down his life and the Lamb who was resurrected to eternal life, which we all look forward to ourselves. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, may all who are present here today in newness of life truly behold the Lamb of God. May we who have faith in Christ have renewed hearts that are filled with gratitude May we have changed lives that reflect who we are in Christ. And Holy Spirit, for, for those who are here with questions, with doubts, would you give faith to believe? Give the only hope that can truly satisfy our wandering hearts. In the name of Jesus, the Lamb of God, we pray. Amen.